Section 15 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7. Blenheim, Part 3. Near Unterglau, General Churchill, Marlborough's brother, had already forced a passage for some of the troops. There was much difficulty in getting across the Nebel, and if Talar had attacked the cavalry whilst they were struggling in the marshy ground, he might have scattered them in confusion. But he allowed the opportunity to pass, and they were able to form on the other side of the Nebel. About one o'clock, Eugène had led his troops across the Nebel to the attack, but the imperial cavalry on that day did not fight well. Three times they were driven back across the Nebel. Eugène himself fought with desperate valor and exposed his person most recklessly, but it was in vain. At last in despair he turned to the infantry, which was composed of Prussian troops and had shown great resolution. Inspired by his courage, they drove the enemy through the wood beyond Lützingen, but were even then unsupported by the cavalry, and their advanced position might have placed them in great danger had it not been that meanwhile the event of the battle was being decided in another quarter. Marlborough's cavalry, after the passage of the Nebel, had formed in two strong lines fronting the enemy. They charged amidst a terrible fire, and at the second charge broke the enemy's line, and an open space was left in the center. Talar saw that the day was lost, but he hoped still to save his army. Whilst he paused, hoping for support from the elector or Marsan, Marlborough bade the trumpet sound for the charge. The French cavalry did not await it. They fired their carbines, turned and fled, some to the left toward Hochstadt, some to the right toward Zondaheim. The allies followed and the slaughter was great. Many were cut down and taken prisoners, others madly plunged into the Danube and were drowned. Talar himself was captured. In Blenheim, 11,000 men still remained. They made a desperate attempt to resist, but they were so hemmed in that both resistance and escape were impossible, and they were obliged to surrender unconditionally. The army of the Elector and Marsan did not suffer so severely. They were able to retreat in good order for Eugène's troops were too exhausted to pursue them, and Marlborough did not venture to do so since in the obscurity caused by the darkening night and the thick masses of smoke, it was easy to mistake Eugène's forces for the enemy. The French and Bavarians had lost 28,000 in killed and wounded, besides 12,000 prisoners, while the losses of the Allies were 12,000 killed and wounded. As soon as Marlborough was certain of the fate of the battle, he tore a leaf from his pocket-book and wrote a hasty pencil-note to the Duchess. I have not time to say more, but to beg you will give my duty to the Queen, and let her know her army has had a glorious victory. Monsieur Talard and two other generals are in my coach, and I am following the rest. The bearer, my aide-de-camp, Colonel Park, will give her an account of what has passed. I shall do it in a day or two by another more at large. Marlborough. Marlborough had been seventeen hours on horseback, and was glad when the battle was over to seek a little rest in a watermill near Hochstadt. 
the next morning he and Eugène entered Hochstadt, and then visited Marshal Tallard and the chief French prisoners. Between Marlborough and Eugène there was no jealousy about the honours gained by the victory. Eugène gladly gave to Marlborough the first place, whilst Marlborough repeatedly stated that Eugène had only been prevented from playing a more distinguished part by bad luck, by the difficulties of his position, and the inferiority of the imperial cavalry. Had the success of Prince Eugène, he wrote to the Duchess, been equal to his merit, we should in that day's action have made an end of the war. Marlborough only reserved Marshal Tallard and one or two of the most distinguished prisoners for the Queen, and caused the others to be equally divided between himself and Eugène, as if their share in gaining the victory had been equal. In England, the whole country broke out into rejoicing at the wonderful victory. Anne went in state to give thanks at St. Paul's, and the people were eager to do anything which might show their joy and their devotion to their great general. The most important result of the victory was that it broke the force of the spell which had surrounded the great power of France. Louis the Fourteenth had gloried in calling himself the Invincible. His armies had never suffered any important defeat. His soldiers had fought with the confidence that repeated victories had given, whilst his enemies had fought against him almost with the feeling that it was vain to hope for success. Now the finest French regiments had been destroyed in one battle. For the moment the French lost their confidence, and the name of Marlborough became a terror to them, whilst on all sides the enemies of France took heart. Marlborough was looked upon almost as if he had the fate of Europe in his hand. From Rome, Lord Shrewsbury wrote to him, I must tell you that in this holy, ignorant city they have an idea of you as of a Tamerlane, and had I a picture of old Colonel Birch with his whiskers, I could put it off for yours and change it for one done by Raphael. The Emperor, usually cold and indifferent, was roused to congratulate Marlborough in the warmest terms. He was anxious to make him a prince of the empire, and Anne was very willing that he should receive this honour. But Marlborough preferred to wait till the emperor had some principality which he could give him, rather than receive an empty title. Numbers of poems appeared in honour of this victory, but neither Godolphin nor Marlborough were men of literary tastes, and they had never exerted themselves to show protection and favour to any of the rising poets or pamphleteers. These poems were so bad that even Godolphin was disgusted with their badness. He was determined that something better should be written, and consulted Halifax, a leading Whig and a well-known friend of literature, on the subject. After some pressing, Halifax at last recommended Addison, who was at that time living in comparative obscurity and poverty. He had first become known by his Latin poems, and had attached himself to Halifax and the Whigs. The accession of Anne had disappointed his hopes of advancement through the Whigs, who were wont to reward writers who favoured their party by some small post under government. Now Addison in his humble lodging was surprised by a visit from Boyle, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in person, for Halifax had insisted that his friend the poet should be treated with due distinction. 
he gladly consented to write a poem in honour of the Battle of Blenheim, which might well be looked upon as a great Whig triumph. When his poem, The Campaign, came out, it was hailed with delight, and pleased Godolphin so much that he gave Addison a commissionership worth two hundred pounds a year. The poem is stately and melodious, and contains some very fine lines, especially those which describe Marlborough on the battlefield. "'Twas then great Marlborough's mighty soul was proved, that in the shock of charging hosts unmoved, amidst confusion, horror, and despair, examined all the dreadful scenes of war. In peaceful thought the field of death surveyed, to fainting squadrons sent the timely aid. Inspired repulsed battalions to engage, and taught the doubtful battle where to rage. So when an angel by divine command with rising tempests shakes a guilty land, such as of late o'er pale Britannia passed, calm and serene he drives the furious blast, and pleased the Almighty's orders to perform, rides in the whirlwind and directs the storm. End of section 15